Hey you, I can hear you, bitch. Um. Oh, we're doing it. What up? Welcome to another fantastic episode of Two Happy Hoes. This is Rachel on the mic. This is also Chelsea, the other happy ho. Yes, we love to see it. Um, I did, did want to give... I Do the kids still say that? I said that and I was like, hmm, I haven't seen that on Twitter in a while. I mean, I don't really follow trends, but I was just wondering... <laughs> Oh, we love to see it. Yes. (laughs) I think, I think it's been surpassed by like, I love that for you or like, (laughs) or it's, it's insert whatever for me, you know, (laughs) as much as that gets on my nerves, I've now find myself doing it in the privacy of my own home in text messages. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) no, I definitely be saying that. I don't think so in public, but I definitely be at least on social media saying that shit. So absolutely. But but we're gonna keep the we love to see it alive. So because I surely love to see it. Yes. But I wanted to start off today giving a brief shout out to our faithful listeners. Um, because y'all are really showing out on uh these episode listens because they have dramatically uh risen in the past couple episodes so and you know what we love to see it (laughs) but for real I'm so happy we've been getting a lot of great feedback and also shout out to the Black Podcast Collective we just joined the movement and there are a lot of dope podcasts on there by Black creators so go check them out and um, share some of the other podcasts that you see I looked on there um, and I listened to I should not even have brought this up because I can't remember the name now, but I listened to one um, from the list when I was driving home to Atlanta this weekend. So uh, yeah, check out the Black Podcast Collective, which we are now members of. Yes, we love to see it. (laughs) I hope that I hope we're pissing y'all off. (laughs) But y'all still going to listen, though. So um... on the steady incline. But um, today we're going to go right into our two bitter bitches. So what you mad about today, Chelsea? I am, I wouldn't even say mad. I'm like low-key annoyed that when, even though I used to do this, but like between my parents where I would like ask my dad something and he would say no. So then I'd ask my mom or like vice versa. But like I was young and dumb and a child and wanted to do things. Um, but most recently in my job, I've been corresponding with this person, um, and they were asking me like questions, um, questions that I really couldn't answer, not 
because I didn't want to, but because the answers are just not known right now um, because they're somewhat related to COVID. And so I tried to be as, you know, welcoming and, and cordial and open and candid with this person as possible based on the information that I had. Well, fast forward like maybe a week. Um, oh, and this little bitch was like, well, when are you going to know the answer? I don't know when the CDC gets back to me, bitch. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So I'm just, I just left that alone. Um, because I just left it alone. No, actually I responded and I was just like, I sent them a link <laughs> with like some information about um, like something from my job. And I was like, they just made a decision about the spring semester. So I'm not going to be able to help you with anything related to the fall. Mm-hmm. apparently that person did not like that answer so they then emailed my supervisor saying that they wanted to speak with someone about this and that they have questions and they want to know blah 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 and so my supervisor unless it's like something that she knows that I cannot answer um or well really something she knows that I cannot answer she usually just forwards those kind of messages to me for me to answer them and in this case she can't even answer the question because we're waiting on the fucking CDC (laughs) honestly like (laughs) sounds dramatic but we're low-key waiting on the CDC the state government like the systems office board of regents all like we can't even tell you this so I just responded to my supervisor and I was like look I already spoke to this person and apparently they didn't (laughs) like the answer that I gave so they just gonna circle back um or try to get the answer from somebody else when I literally told them the university does not even have an answer so I really don't know what to tell them and so she was like um well I will I would respond but you already took care of it so they'll just have to wait (laughs) just have to wait like the rest of us and I was like, like I love we love a supportive queen but also I mean th- I'm making an assumption but I'm assuming this person was a white man um based on context clues i.e their name um <laughs> I could be wrong but <laughs> uh, I'm, sh- <laughs> I'm sure you are though so. <laughs> exactly so it, it's all you needed to see was the name and the additional entitlement so that's all it's we the entitlement for me <laughs> forget the name but I'm just like what do you want me to do do you want me to go down to Atlanta and um pull up to the CDC and ask would you like me to ride out to Durham or Chapel Hill to the UNC systems office and ask them like sir what do you want me to do also why are you so pressed about all this during a global pandemic you might not even live <laughs> shit I might not even live <laughs> so <sighs> to make a long story short it annoys me when people ask a question and then they don't like the answer you give so they ask someone else that same question in hopes to get another answer like bitch we don't have the answer <laughs> so what you mad about rachel uh yeah so i'm gonna try and not go off on like a little vent venting thing um but Speak your piece. This, yeah i think So anyone that knows me knows that I prefer to hang out with ages like mm, 22 and up. And even then 22 is, is very gracious. (laughs) Um, I don't really like being associated with younger people. I don't like spending my time with infants. Like 
it's not my favorite pastime. I don't get excited for baby showers. I don't get excited to like see baby pictures or like stuff like that, because honestly, I'm probably going to be real if your baby looks ugly. Um, and we don't want that. So anyway, <laughs> so wait, when my cousin, she used to always say when she saw an ugly baby and she would just be like, oh, they're so precious. <laughs> we're all God's children. Am I right? So, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, I say all this to say that at the end of the day, just because I don't like children and I don't like spending time with children, I think a lot of people automatically uh, like correlate that with me not being able to potentially be a parent someday or a mother. Um, And those are not my goals in life, uh, if I'm being V honest, but that's also something personally I've thought about and like, I've, you know, and I'm honestly not even like completely against becoming a mother in the future. There's just a lot of things that, you know, I think about in terms of becoming a parent. Right. Um, but I got into a conversation with someone the other day and, I was just talking about like new age parenting styles and like how, you know, sometimes parents nowadays just be letting their children run wild and like without discipline. And I don't mean discipline in a way of like, let, let's get the strap. Yeah. Right. Like, let's get the strap. Like, let you know, I just, I'm not talking about that, but I'm just like, I feel like you can instill discipline and like respect in, in a child without, you know, being abusive or like traumatic in those ways. Right. Like, I don't know exactly the ways, but I, I feel like just because you are instilling discipline in your child, doesn't automatically make you an abusive parent. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I was mostly joking and stuff like that because anyone who also knows me knows that I easily, I, I, I get like very paranoid and embarrassed about like really small things. So like if, (laughs) if I were to like, I don't know, spill something on myself or like something like that. And literally only one other person could be in, in the restaurant. I'll sit there and be like, like, Oh my God, everyone saw, I can never come back to this restaurant. I can't do anything. And so, so and, and so I was talking about how, uh, how, you know, children be acting up in like stores and like stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, I would be just so embarrassed, like da da da, all this stuff. And my, my friend was like, well, uh, basically insinuated I should never become a parent because, and no, actually didn't insinuate, said completely that I should never become a parent. Are they or a I should parent? never parent? No, but they want to have kids and like stuff like that one day, mm-hmm. which is fine. But I'm just like, I, I mostly was joking. Right. Cause I also know like once you become a parent or, um, a mother, especially, or you give birth to a child, like a lot of the times, like different priorities in your life or different things that used to like really matter to you, like ultimately shift or adapt because you have another being in which you are caring for now. Um, not for everyone, right? Like there, there are some parents that don't do that. But I think mostly, you know, that's, that's what parents do. Um, 
And, you know, I, I just, obviously I took that comment to heart because I, I basically raised my brother. I was always around children growing up. I was always babysitting like little babies. Like I, I know how to take care of a child. Like I'm not like, I'm not inept. I, I've taken, yeah. I, and I think there's this assumption because I don't really like fucking with children, particularly children. I don't fucking know. And I don't want to, I don't want to be around. <laughs> right. And also like, I'm at a place in my life where I, I really don't have to babysit like that. And honestly, I don't want to take care of babies that are not my own. And so it also got into this uh, discussion with some other friends because I shared that um, I shared, I shared that conversation with them. And uh, one of my coworkers, Derek was talking about like, cause I was like, uh, what did I say? I said, I think there's this assumption that I can't interact with children and I am awkward with children, but it's honestly not because of the child. It is because of all of the adults watching me interact with this child mm -hmm. because it it happens. Like they make me feel awkward. Like, you know, I'll just want to be chilling with a fucking baby and like, you know, doing my own thing. But I know eyes are watching me because in their head, it's just such a atypical concept for me, someone who doesn't like children to interact with a child. And so it's like this, this scrutiny. And so, yeah, you make me feel awkward. I don't want to interact with your child because I will get awkward because you're making me feel awkward. And Derek was like, yes, yes, that happens. And my friend Rochelle was like, what, what do you mean? I'm like, adults be watching you interact with children. And then they make a huge scene about it. And I honestly don't, I don't need all that attention. Oh, but I'm done with my long monologue, but essentially like, if I want to become a mother, I will, and I'll be a badass fucking mom and I will nurture the fuck out of my children. And either way, I'm going to fuck up as a parent and that's okay. It depends on how much you fuck up your child. Okay. <laughs> You're going to fuck them up in some way, but I also am not rooting to be or, you know, traumatize my children with the trauma that I grew up with. Right. But <sighs> that's a story for another day, but Ooh, that's a lot friend. But first of all, your friend who does not have a parent, who is not a parent and does not have children, uh, needs to STFU. Um, because as someone who has never birthed a child, but is now in like a parenting role of a child, like that shit is hard. There is mm -hmm. no playbook. And sometimes they do shit that's going to embarrass you, but that doesn't mean you don't like love them. Um, and, you know, you're probably going to do shit to embarrass them, but it's like, there's no rule book. There's no playbook. Um, and like you said, it's just about like not fucking them up that much um, and causing them like a lifetime of trauma. And honestly, now being in a like parenting caretaking role has really kind of shifted my idea about like having kids not that I don't want to have kids or that that I've completely like xed out the idea of having kids but I've shifted my mindset about ways to become a parent without like necessarily birthing a child or mm -hmm. um having a newborn and so 
until you like get in the trenches and do that shit stfu <laughs> and that's on that period <laughs> but you're gonna but be the we- best aunt to little whoever <laughs> may come into yes <laughs> yes i mean obviously i'll love your children because i i know them they're not complete strangers child so. <laughs> it would only it will only be one <laughs> oh okay great <laughs> but moving on from those haters what are you happy about today I'm happy because I just I got back from Michigan on Sunday my brother turned 21 and it was the first time I had gotten drunk with this hoe like he because he's he's he wakes up every day like smoking he smokes all day I actually went uh because we went to my mom's house and he had this big ass blunt like I it was the length of my fucking forearm. Like oh I'm, just, <laughs> and he was just like smoking it. I could hardly breathe in that motherfucking room. Um, yeah. So he'd be smoking all the time, but, uh, he never, he has drank with me before, but he doesn't get drunk. So I was excited that we were both drunk together. Woo-hoo. Um, wait, I what was, kind of drunk is your brother? Is he like you? My, no, my brother actually seems he he like tries because he's a Scorpio at the end of the day. He tries so hard to make it seem like he's got it together and he's not drunk when I'm like, you're drunk, bitch. You're drunk. Uh, just because like certain words he'll slur. He also gets like a bit more in touch with his emotions because normally he's just like <laughs> an emotionless ass bitch. So besides like <laughs> anger. So <laughs> <laughs> gotta love that uh and i did find out that he does listen to our podcast he did confirm with me <laughs> because he had listened to the episode and heard that we said we didn't know if he listened yes and he was personally offended and i was like dang okay well well at least i told uh, you happy birthday <laughs> right <laughs> well we appreciate the love we glad we're glad that you support us yes 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 what are you happy about, Chelsea? I am happy because a bitch never, ever, 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 ever has to take a class again in her fucking life if she does not want to. I'm done with this coursework yes. shit. I'm done with this homework shit. I'm done with this classwork shit. I'm done with this discussion board shit. I'm done with it all. <laughs> I'm not dropping out. I'm just done with coursework. But I'm so very happy. Yes, we love to see it. Just a next next checkpoint on your on your journey to becoming Dr. Motherfucking Smith. Woot woot. I was actually gonna start writing my dissertation proposal yesterday, but I had to get a fucking root canal. So that's on hold. Woohoo. So moving on to you don't need him, sis. Yes, yes, yes. And today we're going to be talking about, uh, I think most people know or have experienced these men. Um, And they are the men who, no matter how much you ignore them, no matter how much play you don't give them, how much you drag them through the fucking mud they cannot take the hint. Um, <laughs> ooh, 
I, I mean, personally, I, uh, not to, not to be that bitch, but like men really do just be sliding, especially back when I was like on dating apps and shit like that. Men just be sliding into your shit all the fucking time in your DMS. And I still, I still have folks that don't say anything to me, but they'll like all my stuff. Um, and like, won't interact with me or I, (laughs) right. Or I also have like men who continuously, if I post a selfie or like, you know, a fucking Insta story or something like they'll immediately slide into my DMS. Me ignores them, them messages again, ignored messages again, like literally just does, does not compute. What, what is this? It's like, hey, how are you? Good morning. Hey, beautiful. I hope you had a great day. <laughs> no response, no response, no response. <laughs> like, you see that kind of shit on, like, social media, but that shit really happens in real life. Like, I had, you know how Instagram has those, like, private DMs or, like, the DM request where, like, it doesn't actually go to your inbox right away. Mm-hmm. So, like, I just so happened to check that one day and I had, like, a message, well, a couple of messages, a few messages from this guy and he was like, hey, how are you? I just want to let you know that I think that you're so beautiful. And then, like, I didn't respond. He was like, hey, hope you're doing well. I just would love to get to know you. And I didn't see it honestly but I also wasn't going to respond and then like the next one was like well fuck you too bitch (laughs) and I'm like okay first and foremost I never said fuck you originally but also fuck you (laughs) Um, but I'm like sir like I didn't respond to you so like why did you continue to send me messages like you know if somebody saw your message Right. And it's also like, those are those same, like, fuck you two bitches that will sit there the next day or two days later and be like, good morning, beautiful. <laughs> like they didn't <laughs> just go off on your whole life. Like, Yo. I'm like, what the delusion? Like, is it crack? Like, it's I just. Yeah. I remember like when I used to go out to like oh. clubs and bars more and like guys would like try to talk to me and like I would ignore them or just like say no thank you and they'll be like well you ugly anyway and I'm like okay well if I'm so ugly why the fuck were you trying to talk to me right right (laughs) and it's just it's (laughs) oh my gosh I remember one time I think I was like a sophomore in college maybe and I was like out at a bar slash club with like some of my friends and this guy like kept asking to dance with me and I kept being like no I'm just like you know chilling with my friends blah 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 and he just being kept being insistent and I was I finally gave in and just said yes in hopes that he would leave me alone well mm-hmm. my dumb ass <laughs> it didn't work because then he like wants to dance with me and he's like asking my number and I gave this man the wrong number but instead of like just putting it in his phone and like saving it this bitch gonna start calling me immediately even though we're still in the club together oh no (laughs) and so then he like comes over there and he's like so you gave me the wrong number and I'm like um um, uh." thankfully my friend like saved me but it's like sir like I already told you I didn't want to dance with you for like three fucking songs then I finally caved in and then I gave you the wrong number 
and you still you're gonna come from just take your take your L and go right and it's like why why are you trying to prove first of all uh, they want to sit there and pressure people to uh, get their number. And then obviously, you know, after not taking the hint, it's like, fine. Okay. Maybe they'll leave me alone if I just give them this fucking number. And of course you don't want to give your fucking real number. So then you give a fake number and then they want to prove that, <laughs> you know, what is that? What is the exposure for? Like you, you're only embarrassing yourself, sir. You, okay. you could have done this in the privacy of your own home where <laughs> you could have been embarrassed by your lonesome and left my ass alone. But instead you chose to try and call and then chase someone down in the club to be like, you gave me a fake number. Uh, who's the real clown here? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Ronald McDonald ass looking ass bitch. <laughs> but also um now that I'm like partnered like I'll see like I haven't obviously been going out much but like there have been some instances where I would like see the guys and they'll be like oh like hi or like blah 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 and I'm like oh I have a boyfriend they're like oh well he don't let you have friends no he doesn't he does what a tired line (laughs) like it's like we all know you're not trying to be my friend sir okay like and that's that's honestly a larger discussion because we all know that men really don't be paying no attention and no mind to 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 women who they don't find attractive so like we know this for a fact um because we we talk about it when we're talking about like masculinity and shit like that and it's like well are you really in solidarity or are you really like an ally to like women that you don't find attractive most of the time no no so we we know what's up like don't be like oh he he won't let you it, first of all let me have friends <laughs> chill okay okay this is, this <laughs> I, just is say, not- I just say no so in hopes that you would leave me alone and think i got a crazy ass nigga <laughs> Right. Right. But I'm just like, it's, it's the delusion for me. And I think, I think it also leads into a conversation about like the dangers of like women saying no to men, right? Mm -hmm. Like men want to cry all the time about getting rejected. And it's like, okay, you hold on to this fucking grudge since you were 12 because a woman broke your heart or cheated on you, but you're still living, you're still like breathing and you're like out here. It it didn't take anything away from you. really besides like you experiencing heartbreak whereas like women are out here and we say no to men and it's honestly like dangerous or a safety concern at times women have like gotten killed there have been news stories about like women who have like um told men no or like rejected them and they've like killed them there was a video like that circulated um I think it was on either I think it was on Facebook like a couple of years ago and like this woman and her friend were like coming out of the gas station and this guy was like trying to holler at her and she was like no no thank you and like got in her car and then he like comes up to the car and starts like beating her like through the window like he did not know her at all and it's it's just really scary because sometimes we're pressured into saying yes because of that fear of being in danger um like that night when I was like 19 years old or 20 years old in the club and this guy confronting me because I gave him the wrong number like if my friend hadn't Mm -hmm. have been there if she hadn't have like pulled me away quickly or like 
swooped in like it could have gone like really badly and so it's like a like you said a much larger conversation about how women rejecting men can oftentimes be dangerous and life-threatening because of your because of their egos and pride and like the fact that I I get tensed up even because you know I'd be walking everywhere I'm a walking ass bitch Mm -hmm. and so I you know it could be broad daylight whatever but I always get tensed up whenever like I see men ahead of me or presumably men um because I in and it's not just an isolated incident right and it's not just Mm -hmm. like the societal insulation of like fear of men, but it's also like all of these traumatic experiences I've had with men while walking on the street, you know, starting as early at as ages like 10, you know, even before and men like looking at your body or like saying Mm -hmm. inappropriate things to you or following, trying to follow you home, sitting there and saying things to you as they're trying to follow you home. Like, oh, you can't have friends. You got a boyfriend. Like literally, you know, fear of your life and safety because like your no isn't enough. Like they, they just won't leave you alone. And so even the other day I was on a walk back from my therapist um, office and had turned the corner and I saw, I saw a dude and I was like, you know, purposely on my phone, not trying to look up at him. And then, but I see out the corner of my eye, he, and my headphones are in, but I see him like, you know, try and say hi to me. Like he, he tried to wave at me and I'm like, dog, leave me the fuck alone. You you know what I'm saying? Like there was no reason stranger danger. Like, I don't need to talk to you. You see, I'm on a mission to get my ass home. Leave me alone. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah. I've, I've been there too, especially when I was like solo traveling more frequently. Like I always Mm -hmm. would kind of like game plan, like in my head, if like a strange man or presumably a man like approached me or if they were following me or like taking different routes, back to my airbnbs or hotels or hostels or wherever i was staying just to kind of like eliminate some of that fear that i had um, of having to potentially reject them and have you know my life potentially be in danger Mm -hmm. yeah Um, so you don't need them sis but also no you don't owe these men not a damn thing nothing at all absolutely not so Fuck him. Gray. <laughs> <laughs> one day, Chelsea, Chelsea was saying like one day it's going to be like, you just don't, we don't need men. Moving on. Next, <laughs> next segment. <laughs> That's the day I'm going to be real fed up. AJ going to do something to pick my ass off. And I'm like, you don't need them at all. Throw them all away. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's take a break. What's up, Buttercups? Want to stay connected with Two Happy Hoes even after our episodes air? Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Two Happy Hoes to stay up to date on all our new content and material. The Two Happy Hoes social media is our main space to talk about our new episodes, showcase some of our favorite segments, and give special shout outs to our audience. So follow Two Happy Hoes at the number two, Happy Hoes, H E A U X E S. That's the number two. Happy Hose, H-E-A-U-X-E-S. We hope that you all give us a follow. Now, let's get back to the show. 
All right, so we're back, and we're here to talk about one of our most coveted segments, Wapano. <laughs> Stop trying to make Wapano happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> no, that hurts because it's really not. But for for those that don't know, it's why people are not okay. (laughs) I will make Wapano happen. Make Wapano. Hashtag Wapano. Make it train. (laughs) Ooh. uh, Maybe if we get get bigger. But today, today we're going to be talking about uh, really white Latinas, white Latinx people, but also how... Honestly, anti-blackness in non-black uh, communities of color. Um, yeah, so we which, won't be speaking specifically to the descendants of the Caucasoid Mountains, the Nordic ancestors. Um, we're going a different route today. Yeah. Um, but honestly, it's still necessary for us to talk about uh, and... Yeah, because anti-blackness just, is global. Yeah, it really is. And so um, we all know that uh, white people already have anti-blackness embedded. So let's talk about <laughs> other communities of color. Ooh, laugh to keep from crying. <laughs> okay, Ooh. let's let's start with our number one um, homegirl, the queen of anti-black Latinas. Yes. Jane the Virgin. <laughs> actually known as Gina Rodriguez (laughs) and her anti-black ass just say you hate black people and ghosts yeah just just say that she honestly we all know and honestly it's just like so many old stories but uh like and there was this tweet going around of like put an x over it was uh, this picture of all these like latinas and um TV and stuff like that. And it was something like put an X over like someone who has perpetuated like anti-blackness or whatever. And then someone came on and was like, so should we just put an entire X on this entire picture? Like what, what's happening? Uh, but yeah, Gina Rodriguez out here, you know, when are we going to have a Latino Black Panther? Um, or when she's like, I could say the N word because my father is Black. And she- <laughs> I can't wait to put a picture of her daddy on our Instagram. <laughs> Showed a whole last picture of her father. Um, not an Afro in sight. Uh, so. <laughs> not an Afro to be found. Um, but yeah, we already done drug Gina through the mud, uh, and plenty of other platforms have drug Gina through the mud. But most recently, uh, Eva Longoria been out here with the with the foolishness, the tomfoolery. Um, it was a her in MSNBC. Um, interview where they were talking about the results of the election and um the turn voter turnout of communities of color specifically like black and latina women and um the correspondent brought up about like a lot of the 
the good work that Black women did throughout this election, and um, specifically Stacey Abrams and Eva Longoria gonna get on there and said exactly what she meant to say with that bum ass apology talking about, yeah, Black women did this, but the real, but you got me fucked up with the butt. And then you also got me real fucked up with the real um, heroines um, of the election are the Latinas. And then she came with this bum ass apology. And it's just frustrating, annoying, because like black women barely can get our little flowers as it is. And it's just like anything remotely related to excellence um, related to black women someone has to come stomp on stomp on stomp on the shine like put the light out um and there's if that's not what she meant to say even though we know that's what she meant to say even though she came with that whack-ass apology um there were so many other ways to highlight the triumphs of both black women and latinas but that ain't what she wanted to do and it's also uh, in all these arguments which is shows to me that non-black communities of color or non-black POC, particularly like white Latinas or white Latinx people or like uh, East Asian folks or like, and I guess it extends like even more, but when I think about it, like it's this ignorance of like Afro-Latinx people exist. Like, you know, like black people, like this separate idea that like, oh, but the real heroes here are Latinas. And it's like, okay, uh, so are black, can black women not be Latina? Can Latinas not be black women? Black women. Like, you know, so I, Ooh, it just shows me. Jumped out. Right, so it just shows me and like, I, I mean, neither of these women, um, I think are technically considered like white Latinas, but like, I, it's still, it's still from this rhetoric of like this idea of anti-Blackness and that Black people don't exist in these communities and or like, mm -hmm. uh, there's only one, one uh, type of Latina mm -hmm. and obviously that, that's not true. So, ugh. yeah. And this really spans, um, beyond like just the latinx community um this anti-blackness if we think about the case of kamala harris our new um vp elect who is um multiracial um really multi-ethnic i would say she's um the daughter of jamaican and indian immigrants and really the idea that a lot of south asian specifically indian people were not necessarily you know claiming kamala like that until she really rose to this role as being um the vice presidential candidate and now being the vice presidential elect and we know that that's not just because they didn't know who she was mm -hmm. and so really thinking about how like you said, blackness can show up in many ways, especially for multiracial and multi-ethnic people um, and really trying to like decode and kind of 
critically look at how anti-blackness is like showing up in these communities um, that are predominantly non-black, but also blackness is also embedded in some of these communities as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about like, um, even like from personal experience um, and I know I've, I've talked about this before and if anyone's ever seen me, I'm very, I'm very light. So, um, but Chelsea, Chelsea reminded me of this comment that I got on Tinder back in the day, like in grad school. And, um, I tend, I, I tend to attract and like date a lot of non-black people of color. Um, and I, I remember this message. That I got from this like South Asian man that was like, you don't look like a black (laughs) girl. I was like, delete all that shit, Peggy. I was like, block and delete that man (laughs) right now, honey. Run for the fucking hills. But and it's so weird because then in the same token, I remember I also went to a conference once and I was talking to this other non-black person of color he was he was definitely uh, a white latino and i i like ignored him or didn't get the message for a couple hours and he came back and he's like okay nigger bitch and i was like oh okay well okay so i'm black today <laughs> but oh, whoa. Uh, whoa yes So I sit there and think about those things. And also I remember back in the day, like I was dating uh, this Latino man and he, he was definitely like way more light, um, which now looking back at it, he kind of took pride in, which was a little strange, but I remember living with them for a bit because uh, I was in the trenches financially and (laughs) I had to, that was a rough summer, but um, I remember him telling or his grandma asking if I was Puerto Rican and he lied to her and said, yes. Um, And I was like, I was like, but I'm not Puerto Rican. And he's like, yeah, but you know, like, my family just has, you know, a really rough history with like black people. And, so like, your family like is entire black and racist as fuck. Got it. Yeah. Basically, basically, you know, um, but he was like my first love and like shit like that. And so I was like, yeah, sure. But it also reminds me because later on we started talking again, like back when I was in grad school and I remember men be obsessed with like wanting women to have their, their kids, which is really weird. <laughs> um, but we already done had you a know, segment about that. <laughs> honestly, they really do. They'd be like, so when are you going to have my son? I can't wait for you to have my son. Like <laughs> never a daughter, but I can't wait for you to have my son. And so then uh, we were talking and he was like, you know, like if we had a son, like, uh, he would be like super cute, da da da. Like, hopefully, he would have like your eyes and like uh, this, this and that. And he's like, you know, and also my hair. And I was like, why your hair? And he's like, you know, no reason. Just you know, I just think it would. I think it would look nice and like all this stuff. Like, try to backtrack and backpedal. And I'm like, oh, the anti-blackness runs deep. 
So, but yeah, uh, check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) And that's on what? Period. (laughs) Awesome. So I guess we're going to take one more little break before we hop into the business. So on this episode's POC business shout out, we're shouting out Lilith the Chicken owned by Pal Rogers. Woot woot. Pal's one of my old students, so I'm so happy to see this. Um, Lilith the Chicken is an Etsy shop where you can um, get handmade eclectic items and vintage finds. Anything from jewelry to home decor to even tarot readings. So if you're interested in checking out Lilith the Chicken, go to lilisthechicken.etsy.com. And if you use the code chicken, you'll receive 20% off your entire order. Now let's finish up the show. All right, we're back. Welcome to the Real Tea segment of Two Happy Hoes. Today, we're going to be talking about building solidarity across communities of color. And we have a special guest, our ex-professor, now friend, Dr. Dean Squire. So would you like to introduce yourself, tell the people how you know us, and share a brief background or journey with us about your work with solidarity and building allyship? It's real presumptuous that we're friends now. But here we are. Oh, my, he's my friend, y'all. <laughs> Don't let him fool you. Um, hi. Well, I'm Dean. I know you all from uh, a dark two years of our lives um, in, in the middle of the country at Iowa State. Um, oh yeah you know I was your professor for a couple years at Iowa State during your master's program and uh, we've stayed in touch since Rachel and I wrote a paper together Um, Chelsea is kicking ass finishing up the PhD Um, and so yeah that's pretty much how we know each other Um, journey with solidarity well I think it started probably when I was growing up. Um, so I grew up in Miami, uh, Miami, Florida, which is an incredibly uh, diverse city, uh, racially, ethnically, um, class-wise. And so I think uh, just sort of growing up in those spaces um, with the majority of friends who didn't look like me. So probably the probably the least uh, represented racial group was Asian American folks. Um, and so it was like mostly like black folks, Latino folks, Latinx folks, um, like predominantly. Um, but even like within that, uh, within those two groups, you know, there was, um, folks who were like African American, like, like from the U S and then there were huge, like international populations of folks as well. And so, just like my high school had folks from like 75 different countries. Um, they spoke tons of different languages. Um, and even within that space, like when we broke it down by like class, um, there was just, there were folks who were incredibly poor um, in our high school. And then there were folks who lived like right around where my high school was, whose parents I can only imagine made like six figures. Um, you know, to get like 
each parent made like six figures. Mm. So um, there's a lot of money in some of those spaces too. And so I think that's sort of where my just sort of comfort, I guess, with people who are different than me started. Um, And so you know, when we talk about sort of just like historical segregation and that being one of the the root causes of the continuation of like racism in the country. Um, I think for me, that was one place where I was very lucky um, uh, to, to be in a really uh, diverse space. Um, I don't know if like at the time I always had all the language to be like, oh, I understand like your struggle and like how these various systems of oppression are like impacting you in the day to day. But like, you know, we talked about some of those things. We didn't have the language, but you know, as I continued through school and all that stuff, um, I, I was able to like understand what was going on in that space and how like my, one of my best friends is a black woman and just like how her experience was much different than me um, as an Asian American man um, or how my best friend who made a Latino who um, had a pretty comfortable upbringing, like how his ability to go to college and go to the, and transfer to like the really best, the best high school in town, you know, how that sort of played out in his life differently. So um, I would say like the language to understand, understanding like solidarity sort of came, came later on. Um, and when I sort of think about like, continuing that journey of solidarity and allyship um, into my like more professional life. Uh, It really started, I think, in my master's program at the University of Maryland um, when Dr. Sharon Friesbritt sort of became like a mentor, um, yeah, advisor (laughs) and all that. And so that sort of like started this trajectory of like black folks and particularly like black women sort of being mentors to me and advisors throughout my uh, career. Um, so I say that was that piece. And then the last thing I'll just say, I think is, um, identify as like a queer biracial person. And so I definitely think that I exist in sort of like this interesting, like liminal space. And I don't know, if, Rachel, you have any like experience with this, but I feel like I can sort of move between groups. And at the same time, I don't really exist in any one of them. Um, so I think there's sort of this, um, there's something about being able to sort of like gain, temporary entry into different groups um, while also not being a part of like really any of them. Um, so when I enter those spaces, I always feel sort of like hyper vigilant um, mm-hmm. about just like making sure that I'm not like taking up any like extra space in there that I'm welcome that I'm, you know, that pe- I've been invited into those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm ultimately like doing the best to, um, to support, you know, those folks in whatever ways they need or request, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. No, that definitely makes sense. Um, <laughs> we could have a larger conversation around <laughs> multiracial, biracial <laughs> folks. Um, yeah. <clears throat> you're muted or you're not muted, but I can't hear you. <laughs> I didn't say anything. No, I'm talking about Chelsea. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's just talking into an abyss uh, <laughs> but <laughs> no no boo Balls. <laughs> yeah so I mean I'll just keep talking while she figures it yeah. out but I, you know I think part of what I'm uh, like when I'm trying to enter into those spaces that you know that are not 
necessarily like Asian American spaces or gay spaces or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. For me, it's always like listening, learning, uh, being curious and like taking action, I feel like are some of the things that I'm always trying to ensure that I do. Um, I think the being curious piece is like the most important part. Like, how do you, not to like ask, not necessarily like asking folks to like share their stories per se, but like being curious enough to then go find additional resources, readings, whatever it mm -hmm. might be. Um, so you're not like burdening folks, but you're doing your best to like learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She back. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> the <turn of> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Uh, no that's definitely um that's definitely helpful knowledge um I do uh like the curiosity piece um when we're thinking about doing allyship work or like being in solidarity with folks um I guess we can start with thinking about um what are some of the issues that you see or like horizontal violence that you see happening across communities of color that you feel impedes the work of building like coalitions or solidarity with one another? Um, mm -hmm. And what are some ways that you feel like you've challenged these issues within your own work? Yeah, this is like really salient right now for me. Um, during, so it actually started with, um, all like the BLM protests that were happening this summer and my brothers and I crafting this email to our family, uh, Vietnamese family, mm. um, just sort of about the ways that we've seen like anti-Blackness show up in our family and the way that they talk um, and the way they sort of think about the world and also sort of just sort of broadly couching it in relationships between like Asian American communities and Black communities and it was really rough. Like mm. I did not expect them to push back as hard as they did um, and to like really like entrench themselves in like anti-blackness. Um, and that was ex extremely difficult because, um, well, I mean, for a lot of reasons, because they're my family, but also because they are like, they're immigrants um they are I don't know lower middle class like not in incredibly wealthy um they have had at least what they've said best friends and friends who are black um at different points in their lives um and they are people of color <laughs> so you know there's <laughs> all these pieces at play and I'm just like what is happening here like I don't understand and um, they just like super dug in and, um, it really put a strain on particularly like my relationship with my mom and my family just broadly, um, kind of my other family, like my aunt, uncle, grandma, all of them, like they all voted for Trump in 2016. And, um, I knew that they did. And they, they always use that frame, uh, phrase, refrain, like, um, well, we love you. Like, that's all that matters. And like, you know, Rachel and I, we've talked about this before, but like, that's not all that matters. Like, that's yeah. not enough. It doesn't work like that. Um, and yeah, that's really, it's really fucked up. And so, um, now, you know, then this election comes and I find out that my mom voted for Trump 
and she's also an Obama voter. And so I'm like, I don't really understand what's happening here. I know. (laughs) And I, I literally like, I canceled her for my life. Like I- Throw the whole mama away. (laughs) No, I did. I blocked her on every um, app uh, on my Mm. phone everything because it's, you know she was just it's it's more complicated than the way I'm saying it but yeah, you know, yeah. a lot kind of went into that um and just sort of the way she was thinking about the world but you know so that's basically to say that I think there are there's a lot of like anti-blackness in Asian American communities in particular um I think that uh and for for me uh, in this this example like it's um immigration mixed with generational mixed with sociopolitical so mm-hmm. you know they came from like a communist country mm-hmm. um they think they're good immigrants you know they came over the right way when they're supposed to you know all that that mm-hmm. narrative that we hear all the time um and so i think having and and vietnamese folks are the only group that voted more for trump um, than out of every Asian ethnic group. Um, and so wow. all of this kind of plays into it. And it's sort of the same mm-hmm. narrative as like Cuban folks. Um, and so, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, I think those are all pieces to it. And then I sort of think, started to think about like in uh, LGBT communities, like more LGBT folks voted for Trump this year than they did in 2016. <laughs> and you what know, is, obviously what, what is that I feel like is it don't have all like is it crack? <laughs> yeah you know we don't have all the like the data and all that stuff from the from the election but I wouldn't be surprised if it was like you know 96 percent white gay men who mm-hmm. voted for Trump who are making up that that piece and then so the, the whole point for me then is that I think that that's a class issue that mm-hmm. is playing out as well in LGBT communities because um, you know, it's like dinks, right? Double income, no kids. So they got a lot of money um, and they're white as hell. So they're engaged in whiteness um, and, you know, hyper-capitalism and like mm-hmm. all that shit. Um, and they, they can insulate themselves from, you know, any sort of like oppression that might be happening because they're the majority, you know, within this, within the queer community. And so, um, I just, that's just sort of things that I've been thinking about, like across, across identity groups, I guess. Um, I guess before we jump into like ways that you may challenge this, like in your own work, and you've already talked a little bit about how you challenged it with your family. Um, growing up in Miami, where there is like a large Cuban population and there is um, historical context of like anti-Blackness in, um, with like Cuban what is the word that I'm looking for? Fill in the blank. You know the word I'm looking for. Do you have any experiences with with that? Or did you see that growing up? Like anti-Blackness in like within Cuban culture that you were around growing up at least. I don't know if I noticed it back then. Um, we had really interesting uh, conflicts between different groups. So it was always um, like US born black folks versus like Haitian Americans. Mm. And there was like gangs, like fighting gangs. And then it was always Cubans versus Puerto Ricans. Mm. And so like, those are kind of the two big like groups that would always be like fighting and 
Um, so that, I guess that's the biggest conflict that I noticed. It doesn't mean that that didn't happen. Mm. Um, I just don't know if I had enough like consciousness to, to see it at that point. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not yeah. black. I'm Haitian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. It was so interesting, but yeah, I don't know. I'm sure somebody's written about it. Oh yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, from what I'm I'm hearing, like a common issue that we're seeing in communities of color, particularly non-black communities of color, is anti-blackness, right? Yeah. <laughs> it just runs so deep. Um hate but to- also <laughs> right, hate to see it. <laughs> but um also thinking about the class issues that you mentioned as well. Yeah. Um But yeah, we would love to hear like ways that you have challenged this in your own work. I know that you be sending angry emails all the time to people. (laughs) Okay, you don't Um, cut off, you don't cut mama off, but what else? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like the king of sending an email that's going to read your ass. Like, um, and it, it, I sent a couple this summer, you know, during, (laughs) during everything that was happening. Um, and I send it to all my faculty. I send it to all my students um, because nobody nobody says anything around here. Nobody does anything around here. So I feel like sometimes I'm like on an island alone. Um, and I've definitely gotten a lot of repercussions from it. You know, I'm definitely seen as like an agitator, as angry, you know, all those tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, I don't care. Like my work is good. And so... Um, I feel like I do better and more work than most of the people in my college. So um, I think in a more formal answer, I guess, would be like when I'm writing, when I'm teaching, um, I tend to start with like settler colonialism. Um, And so I think the historical perspective is like incredibly important. And that's something that's definitely grown in my work um, over the last few years. And um, I start, almost all my classes now reading something, you know, like Ebony and Ivy. Well, we read that in class, mm-hmm. um, Ebony and Ivy. Um, One of the few books I've read. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I quoted it in my comprehensive exam. Like, oh, I'm good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like in the fall, we're gonna read, um, and actually in my like diversity classes I teach, um, like indigenous people's history of the United States, mm-hmm. you know, so starting with like that foundation, that most people don't get, including myself, you know, Mm -hmm. in in K-12 schooling and sometimes in higher ed as well. Um, So I think like starting in those places really helps all of us to to be on the same page, like from day one. Um, And it also just sort of reminds me to think um, beyond just sort of like racism, I guess, beyond even just like slavery even, right? Like starting from the beginning, like day one, what the hell happened around here? Like what is settler colonialism? How does it take place, you know, globally, but also here in the US? Um, and how, how does it still uh, permeate mm-hmm. our society via whiteness and anti-blackness and indigenous erasure? Um, and so I think like those are all the pieces that I'm starting with. And then like in my work, I'm trying to be more conscious about um, thinking about how do we like indigenize higher education um, and really attend to like those three technologies, like I said, like 
whiteness, anti-blackness and indigenous erasure. Um, and moving even away from some of those like traditional frameworks that we tend to use like CRT for instance, like does that really give us enough to, to make a change? arguable um so you know i think i think those are some of the ways that like i do it in my own work um but it's also just like it is it is calling people out like it's um doing it at the risk of my job and not really my job but you know the continuation of my job through tenure and things like that mm-hmm. um like that i think is important for me to do um so an example really fucked up um beginning of the school year you know everything happened over the summer all of a sudden our leadership gives a shit um about uh racism in our college um yeah and so we have all these breakout groups all the faculty um in the college at the beginning of the year um i'm in a group with 10 people i'm the only person of color of course they want me to facilitate the group even though i'm not a part of the coordinating team um anyways White faculty member says the N word, full ass word. <laughs> what? Yeah, full ass. It's twenty twenty. It is twenty twenty. Okay. It's like nineteen sixties in Arizona, but though we did vote blue now, but you know, that's because <laughs> of native folks. Um, <laughs> and then he made I... another. Uh, Wait, so y'all just sitting at the round table and they're like, er, like what? <laughs> we'll talk about that offline go ahead (laughs) yeah yeah uh i think what did you say last time hard r yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah um (laughs) and um and then called people from the middle east ragheads and i was like i don't even i never heard that term before um but (laughs) rachel i'm over here rethinking our trip Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, I mean, Arizona is a messed up place. But anyway, you know, anyways, so I had to call it ass out. And then I had to send him this long email. And I was just like, this is why you can't say that. Like, you know, you know, this is super fucked up, all that stuff. Not a single, like, chair, associate dean, the dean. Nobody said anything. Whew. You know? They were like, oh, Dean, thank you so much for handling that. And I'm like, why did I have to handle that? Like, why didn't you handle that? Um, and that was just the first of four days of different iterations of racism showing up within our college. Um, and every time me having to say something to them to be like, this is really fucked up. And a lot of, and once again, like nobody else saying anything. Mm. No white people, nobody. It's mostly white people, but like nobody else, you know? Um, And so that's how I just feel like I'm always challenging stuff at work. And I was done by like the first week of classes. I was just Mm -hmm. like over this place. Um, And I continue to be over this place (laughs) most days um, because of that. So yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us to like use our voices as we can, use the knowledge that we have, like um, use whatever power we can muster. so yeah, that's where I'm at right now. Hmm. Ooh, I guess, that's a lot. Can I ask a quick follow-up question? Um, and how you, cause I'm hearing a lot of around like, yes, stepping up and calling out and like uh, 
doing this work, even like if other people are just like not showing up. Right. But, and I remember vividly, I don't think it was in your class, but I think it was in a different class within our grad school experience, Chelsea and I's, and we were talking, I think it was, uh, never mind. I'm not going to call them out, but, um, we were talking about, point them out. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about safety within a job. So, and that is the one main thing that was like all of our white cohort members were coming forward and they're like, yeah, I mean, that's something that holds me back, you know, basically from doing social justice work or like, you know, calling people out because they were like, I I'm super afraid of the risk, the risk component that it comes with like my job, which I think there's like layers to that. Um, Mm -hmm. but I guess I'm wondering like, how, how do you navigate that for yourself in terms of like, I, like, obviously you're in academia, you, you're a professor, like you, I I would assume you want to like get tenure one day and stuff like that. Um, and I guess, yeah. How, how do you leverage the risk and fear of like losing your job under capitalism, under a pandemic, like all these things, like, yeah. Versus, you know, um, showing up to do the work. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that was definitely a huge fear. And then when COVID hit, I was like, I was freaking out. Like I really was, mm-hmm. um, particularly because, you know, our types of programs, student affairs programs, they don't really make money for the colleges because you all get assistantships, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's not like we're, we're a money-making enterprise within the college, like cut your ass right away. <laughs> The only thing is that in Arizona, and I don't know if it's true in other states, they can't just fire a tenure track faculty member, even if they don't have tenure, unless they get rid of the entire program. So, you know, I think part of it is sort of learning, like learning your place within within the academy um, and sort of what can happen or not in that space. Um, And even within a faculty dynamic, like there are still other identities, right? So maybe go into like your intersectionality piece too, right? Like white people like have different, different power to say things and um, be seen as competent and um, good. And I would definitely say things in faculty meetings and nobody would listen. And then literally, and this is like, this is not like a news story, right? Then white right. faculty would say the same thing and they'd be like, oh my God, like, so novel. Idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a great idea. Like, yeah, that's amazing. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> I said it four weeks ago. Um, so I think that that's part of it. Um, and then, you know, I think part of it too is after that a little, I was thinking about this a little bit before that, but around that time also, I really sort of started to um, solidify what we call, what I'm calling our justice collective within the college, um, which is a group of faculty members who, it really just started off as like my friends who I like trust um, to do like anti-racist work or who are interested in like being better around this issue. Um, And we just started meeting to sort of strategize like, what do we do within the college? And um, part of it in those places is then sort of like training them to learn how to stand up to like recognize when something racist has happened and then to like do something about it. Um, But kind of going back to your question about like me personally, um, 
you know, there's a, there's that like adage that you know, like people of color have to do like twice as much work to get half as far. And I feel like that has been my reality um, that I like, you know, and, and the, the currency in academia is like publications, right? So mm-hmm. um, like my CV is amazing. Like it's good, <laughs> you know, like for somebody, for somebody who's at my level, like it, it, and particularly at NAU, like it is four times better than some of our full faculty members. So like I work hard so that you can't say that I didn't do enough when I go get tenure, even mm-hmm. if you think I'm a troublemaker. Yeah. It's not fair, but it is what it is. Yeah. Ooh, that's a conversation for another day as well because that's my <laughs> that's my dilemma with the academy right now but yeah. I guess shifting to a a brighter side of things what are some positive examples that you've seen um of coalition building and solidarity building in your work or in your personal life yeah, I mean, I think the Justice Collective is a really good like example of a way that we're starting to, um, yeah, create this this group of faculty members who are going to be like strategically deployed across the college, essentially. So like we exist in all the different departments, um, and some of us have like a lot of that knowledge and the skill to really like combat what's happening, and some of us are there to learn. Um, and once again, like build that skill, I think. And so, um, I spent a lot of time, so I read, um, Emergent Strategy. Have you all read that mm. by Adrian Mari Brown? Mm-mm. I want um, to, cause everyone yeah. tells me I should read it. Same. I think I probably told you to read it. <laughs> yeah. I think you're the everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, a hundred percent. I remember sending you the text. I was in the hot tub reading the book and I told you, <laughs> um, <That is> your- <laughs> no 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 definitely read the book it's super fast it's a quick read but literally it sort of just like kind of changed my perspective about like how social change can happen and she really kind of um uh says that you know you you can start in these like smaller communities and then um it'll it'll ripple out it'll grow over time right and so there's like a couple like points that she says um some like values, I guess, around this type of coalition building. Um, And yes, I am gonna read it off my notes. Um, But it says, uh, she starts with like, do hear what you're seeking to do in the world. So like show up in the space um, and be like the anti-racist person that you want to be, you know, in a broader world. Like don't just show up here and like act all progressive and shit and then go home and be some like liberal hack. Less on point, more more on purpose, relationships are the measure of our strength, trust your work and each other, feel your feelings and create more possibilities. And so like, those are sort of like the main tenets of like engaging in that type of work. And, um, you know, it's definitely like a slow start. Like we've only been together one semester, but like in that space, we strategize about like, how do we, like, what do we need to do to push this college forward? So like, we wrote a letter to the Dean signed by a bunch of faculty um, that said like, this is what we're demanding essentially. Like we want a task force. We want it to do this thing. We want it to be funded. Da, 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 da. Um, we got the meeting with all the leadership and then like 
a week later it started to happen, you know? So like it's moving. Um, so, you know, I think granted, you know, like task force and all that stuff can be performative, but it is mm -hmm. something that's happening. And so like something is better than nothing. We also all have to do like audits of all of our curricula to find out like where diversity and racism is being discussed in classes across the entire college. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there's, there's things like that that happen as a result of um, us pushing. Um, and kind of going back to your other point about like, how do you feel about the safety in your, in like, in this whole like tenure process? Um, in my case, like I've also spent time in this spaces building relationships with people like white people in particular who sometimes I have to coach a little bit but when I ask them to do something they do it right mm -hmm. like they call out somebody um uh that's usually what it ends up being they call out somebody <laughs> <laughs> when I don't want to do it you know when I'm like too tired to do it when I've done it before all that shit and so those have been really you know even if they're like kind of shaky about it like mm -hmm. they're it's okay like they said it they did it they're practicing you know being active and like for me that's that's good like you have to kind of take people where they're at and kind of build it you know yeah yeah, yeah. I actually almost would rather them maybe be a little like shaky and uncertain about themselves than feeling like they know everything and then they kind of be that person who like parachutes into a community and tries to save them you know, yeah. so like there is sort of like that balance there. Yeah. Yeah, I can appreciate that definitely. Um, because the savior complex or the like, I don't want to say anything wrong um, syndrome is all, like they're, they're played. Yeah. <laughs> they're played. Yeah. I do. I do. Yeah. I do like that note though. Cause I think, yeah, definitely a sh like a shaky, uncertain white person is like still most of the time open to learn and understand and like grow. But then mm -hmm. if you have like those white people that are like, I've studied this, I've read white fragility. I know like, and we're like, no, please sit down. They're like, how like they'll sit there and turn Ooh, the script and be like, you know um, I, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, in our field, they are hot, honey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I was at a conference. I can't even, I wouldn't even be able to call this person out because I don't even remember their name, but I went to a conference <laughs> last year and they were just like that. And I was like, woo, Chile. <laughs> like, please, enough. The Oscar goes to you. <laughs> Yeah, at Ash two years ago, I think I made, I don't know if I told you this, but I was a discussant for a yes, set of papers. where all girls stole the work. Yeah, yeah. So like a white grad student and her professor um, like basically stole this like narrative of, I think of a Latina mm -hmm. um, grad student. I don't know if she was a grad student at the time, but grad student, um, like at the time of the event, uh, but either way. And used it in her paper that she presented at ash and the latina woman was in the audience what? Uh, <laughs> and stood yeah, up at i the remember that because i met you for like coffee or something like right after that oh yeah yeah and like called her ass out and 
so in that you know that moment then like luckily there was also a really great chair um Catherine Cho and she um oh, now yeah. teaches at, at Miami University of Ohio mm-hmm. she's a professor there now um and she said something in that moment I gave my remarks and then I had to do like a lot of like behind the scenes work after that um calling out that those two authors wrote this like I literally spent I that happened in the afternoon I spent the rest of my day in my room like I went back to where I was staying just like crafting this email to them um you know and like being very specific with my language and like you know not trying to like I don't know just trying to make it to fix what happened and to tell them that wasn't that wasn't um acceptable and then had to work with like the actual association itself to you know tell the president and all those people kind of what was happening I spent like the entire like ruined my entire day um because of these two white um Karen's 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 like scholars I don't know um (laughs) but like you know like it's just super fucked up stuff so it's like I think you know all of this kind of also just plays into like the allyship also just the thing we haven't talked about either yet is just sort of like it's so much energy and it's exhausting to like Mm -hmm. do it but like I know I need to do it I'm going to do it but it all is, is also exhausting Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where like other allies could really come in and it would be great to like have them take some of that burden off. Um, mm-hmm. I guess burden's not the right word, but you know, just like whatever sort of negative energy that's happening in that space um, to, so that it's not always like people of color having to do all the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you're, your conference stories reminded me of <laughs> this one story um, real quick, real quick. <laughs> um, so Vic, who was on the, sh- the last episode, um, had presented at NASPA um, with their best friend around. Have you ever read the book by Mia McKenzie? It's called like The Solidarity Struggle. Mm. Um it's actually a really good book. It talks about like the ways that people of color fail and succeed at showing up for one another. And it's just Mm. a bunch of different shorts kind of essays around like different intersecting identities, all this stuff. And so when they presented at the conference, they politely asked for white people to leave the audience. And because, you know, this is work that, you know, we're all doing as POC trying to like you know, come to terms with the fact of how we're failing and how we can succeed at better showing up with one another. And we don't need the voyeuristic white gaze, you know? Mm -hmm. And I guess there was this white person in the audience who was just huffing and puffing, super like upset. And so emailed like really high up in the, in the whatever committee. And ultimately, um, not that they were like reprimanded, reprimanded, but they had to have like multiple meetings afterwards, basically being like, why did you do this? Like, I forget, I forget what the actual follow-up was, but it was, it's just really shitty when you recognize like white people's power in that space and like thinking about how folks of color are trying to do better at like showing up for one another. Um, and instead of white people, like, you know, 
doing what allies should do. They instead are like, I deserve a space at this table and like, you're a part of the problem. So yeah, just wanted to I think to it happens more that. often than we like think it does. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Ooh, but... Oh, yeah. so maybe related. So we're doing our like our little committee, our little um, our college. What the hell am I trying to say? Like our program <laughs> within our college, uh, the counseling program. They mm-hmm. were like, okay, we're gonna do a book club, and I don't know. I think they're reading like stamped or something like that. Um, and a white faculty member was like, oh, I'll help lead the discussion. I'm like, oh, cool, like awesome, like thanks so much, like. Mm-hmm. We had already said we we're not showing up as like people of color, faculty of color, because we're like, that's your shirt. Like, we're good over here. And as soon as we said that, she rescinded her like offer to lead the book club because she said that she wanted all the people of color there as well as the white people. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's not how it works. So you basically um, wanted me to do all the work, but you wanted to say you was doing it too. Yeah. Wow. I mean, well, wow. I think she also wanted to be seen as like a good white person. Like, yeah. oh, look, I'm like helping all these people of color and they're going to see me do it, you know? Um, <laughs> like I said, the was, white savior complex play. <laughs> yeah. But that was just another example of like where then I talked to my other colleague, my other white colleague, who's like a really good friend of mine and said like, you need to get her, like tell her what's up. And she did, she did a really good job and you know, they dealt with it and they're doing it or whatever, but just, yeah, another kind of example of that, I think. Wow. This is a rough place to be. (laughs) (laughs) So we already touched on it a little bit, but um, can you talk about how intersectionality does play a role in allyship? I think it come, it plays a role in um, how we just sort of like conceptualize maybe like solutions to, to issues. Um, so I think that like a lot of allyship is sort of performative when it's not intersectional. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sort of just have these like single stories about groups of people. Um, and I sort of just think about like myself in relation to a couple of friends and I sort of think about like healthcare, right? So like healthcare is limited by my queerness in the sense that like I can't find a single LGBT mm-hmm. doctor where I live um but because I'm like a cisgender gay man like I feel like comfortable going to pretty much like I can go to any doctor at the end of the mm-hmm. day um, but like my best friend um is a white trans man and so like that healthcare access is very different yeah um but he worked um, down at the East Chicago for a while. And that's like a predominantly um, black air neighborhood um, and worked with like queer and trans folks down there. And so like that, the healthcare is even more limited um, in, th- in that area, you know, due to like class um, and, um, and race too, you know, just feeling comfortable with your yeah. doctor um, and being trans as well. And so, you know, I think all of those pieces kind of play out together, right? So like you can put a pride flag outside and it like will make me feel comfortable maybe like being in the neighborhood, but like it's not going to ensure everybody healthcare at the end of the day, right? So like, I think we all need to like do a little more digging, do a little bit more like learning um, and a little less um, essentializing. 
Love to hear it. Uh, yeah. I feel like especially that last comment around, you know, <laughs> hanging a flag isn't going to ensure healthcare. Um in light of recent events, what are some actionable ways uh, to challenge performative allyship or allyship being viewed as a trend um, or at least the way that you're, you're seeing it? Yeah, I think, I think my experience is, everybody's experience as a person of color is gonna be different in their relationship to like white people. Um, and I think, like I said, sort of earlier, like being biracial, does give me kind of access to spaces where like, and also Asian American, where like people feel like safe around me, including like white people. And so I, I use that to sort of like amp up, like I mentioned, like white people to like step up and um, to not be like so performative. So I do a lot of that sort of just behind the scenes stuff on like when people post stuff on like Instagram or if um, like my a friend is pregnant white cis woman, hetero woman. Um, and she was like, oh my God, it's so expensive to like have a baby. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. But like, imagine if you didn't have healthcare or you didn't have, or you're a black woman and like, you're more likely to die um, in a hospital mm -hmm. from being pregnant, you know? And she was like, oh shit, I didn't even think about that. And I'm like, yeah, I know you didn't think about it. That's why I said it. But like, you know, I think sort of having those, like, I love her. Like she's, she's great, but like, the baby shower, like, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so I think it's just sort of like having those like moments with people as much as you can. And usually happens with friends. And I think that's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, but as much as you can, like holding people accountable um, as often as possible um, when you see them, I think that that's important. I think the, there's been a lot of more awareness around like mutual aid funds mm -hmm. um, and like donating to those versus some of our like bigger organizations or just like the, the, the big names that maybe a large percentage of their donations don't actually go to like communities. Mm -hmm. um, so I think like identifying those within your city or, you know, wherever you want to donate um, that has, I think, become more regular for folks. And I think that that's a good thing at the end of the day. Um, you said white fragility. I said like, don't read white fragility <laughs> um, or like, you know, pick up a different book um, mm -hmm. or even like how to be an anti-racist. Like I, those books are super basic. So like maybe read that book and then like move on. But mm -hmm. for me, I think a way to like, to move from maybe being performative to being a little bit more um, like active and impactful is to read more memoirs. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but like read more memoirs of like, black folks, of indigenous mm -hmm. folks, of whoever it is, right? Because for me, like those have been some of the books that have really like reshaped the way I thought about um, how people like move throughout the world. Um, so I just read Thick. I just finished that the other day. Yes, um, I'm I reading just, that right now. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's, it's really awesome. I'm going to assign it in class. Um, there's a book called Minor Feelings that just came out by Kathy Park Hong. They're talking about like the Korean American, Asian American experience. Um, Between the World and Me truthfully was one of the, like the most impactful like books around just thinking about like how black men experience mm -hmm. um, the U.S. and racism in the U.S. So I think like those types of books are really good and kind of move you from like away from performative allyship. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like if you're sort of starting, um, then like finding the ways that feel kind of comfortable at first and then move out of there but like you just got to do something you know I don't know if it's like 
the best answer to the question, but like, you got to do something ultimately. Um, and I think, you know, maybe part of it too is like also get friends that don't look like you. Mm-hmm. Like that's a good step as, as well. <laughs> like all your friends shouldn't look like you, so. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that statement. And then I always, cause I was actually listening to the read and they, they were talking, uh, they were answering like listener questions or whatever, or audience questions. Mm-hmm. And one of them was from a white woman and a white couple and they were adopting like a black child and like Crystal was like you the one thing I will say is that they you know you need to make some black friends that have black (laughs) babies and like all that stuff but but then I was sitting there thinking I was like how awkward would that be to like be like a white person be like can you be my friend for my black child can you yeah. <laughs> and I know it's not actually like that but I do think like I I think sometimes especially for white people or I guess people that don't have a diverse group of friends because it doesn't just have to be white people right but I think a lot of them get into a mindset of like well those folks just don't like me mm. And I think that is something that folks need to reflect on, on like, well, why don't they like you? (laughs) Like, you know, what, what are you emanating that like is showing that you are not trustworthy to be, you know, a person of color's friend or a black person's friend or like, you know, so maybe like sitting there and really deeply reflecting on your aura because it's probably deeply fucked. So, yeah. But also like we all make choices, like mm. we make choices about where we live mm. and we make choices about where we send our kids to school. And like mm. white people make very um, intentional choices to live in predominantly white spaces mm. and to send their kids to predominantly white schools, whether they're private or they're public, but they, are, they exist in predominantly white neighborhoods. So they're essentially private, um, you know? And so like, people just need to make better choices around the, around those things too. Right. Cause ultimately like we continue to segregate. Um, and I think, you know, obviously that's a huge, huge, huge concern. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Well, we'd love to close out with like any resources or quotes or more readings you would like to share um, websites, Instagrams. Um. I like uh, Grace Lee Boggs. Um, uh, oh my God, Rachel with the title of it. I was waiting for you to bring her up because <laughs> next generation uh, revolutionary, twenty first century revolution. So like, <laughs> I can't remember the full title, but uh, definitely read it. And the 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 like most famous quote from there is like, "We are the leaders we've been waiting for." Um, and so I think that like, that is always something that's sort of guiding me, and that I try to like instill in. Um, all my friends and my students and all that, you know, when they feel like, oh, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, you got to do something like you're the leader we're waiting for, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so like do that work. Um, I think their emergent strategy, I think everybody should read that book as well. Um, Dean Spade, uh, his book, Normal Life. Um, he, mm-hmm. It's about like uh, trans folks. And at the very end, he introduces this idea of like trickle up social justice Right, so like doing work that um, that attends to the oppressions of like the most marginalized folks in our society, and then that 
all folks about uh, that who like have less, um, who exist in less oppressive structures also benefit. Um, I mentioned indigenous people's history of the United States, definitely a read. Um, and then the indigenous action network, um, they have this, I'm, I may have signed it to you, but this um, document about the ally industrial complex and how mm. they're really, you know, I think it's called uh, accomplices, not allies. So how do you actually like do work that could potentially like put your life and put your job and all those things on the line to ally in their case, we're talking about indigenous folks, but I think it applies mm -hmm. across identities. So those are sort of things that I always kind of go back to like articles and books that I really resonate with. Um, but I'm sure there's a ton of others as well. Yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah. Love to see it. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show with us today and recording with us. Um, we couldn't think of anyone else to bring in for this topic besides you. Um, <laughs> no sarcasm. She's serious. Oh, like literally so serious. Um, Thank you. and, uh, yeah. How, how can the folks, how can the folks find you if you want to be found? How can they connect with you on social media? I feel like right now all my, <laughs> right now all my social media is locked down, but, um, See, I told you. Yeah. So at Dean Squire on Twitter. Um, so if they friend me and I'm like, okay, you look cool, then I'm going to like, I'll let you in. Um, it's just to like get all the weirdos out of there. Um, right. Tell them the two happy hosts, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, that's probably the best way for, for folks to, to get a hold of me. Um, okay. And I got a book coming out soon. You didn't know that? Oh, okay. no, that in there? <laughs> right. Yeah, I got a book. So um, it's called Plantation Politics and Campus Rebellions. Power oh, Diversity. <laughs> yeah. Power We've been diversity. down there for the trenches since you like started that. Yeah. I know. I, <laughs> I like um, sort of like test ran it with your like cohort in that class. Yeah. Um, yeah, so well, we wrote a piece. So there's a piece in Teachers College Record right now um, that came out in 2018. So people can kind of grab that, which is the theoretical framework for the book. And then the book is uh, Plantation Politics and Campus Rebellions, Power, Diversity, and the Emancipatory Struggle in Higher Education. Um, and it's an edited volume. Um, so I wrote the first chapter, which is sort of an expansion on the um, theoretical framework. And then we got a lot of folks who are um, essentially arguing that like plantation life um, is embedded not only in like physical structures of higher education, which is sort of like what um, Ebony and Ivy mm -hmm. um, gets at, um, but in the everyday workings of higher education and mm -hmm. its structures and policies and programs and the way we um, think about black folks and stuff like that. So it comes out in uh, March, I think, through SUNY Press. Okay. Okay, SUNY Press. <laughs> Y'all okay. somebody famous, okay? <laughs> right, a whole author. <laughs> like, okay, March is good because I'll be done with my dissertation proposal then, so I'll have a little time to read it, okay? <laughs> okay. Love it. Well, yes. like we said, we appreciate you coming on the show. Our friend, Dean <laughs> um but as always keep it classy and sometimes trashy hoes 
Bye.